0: Psalms <clears throat> for Worship, Work, and Witness. This is the book of Psalms. And as we prepare to start, I want to remind you, one of my pet peeves is when people say, let's read from Psalm chapter 1. Psalms don't really have chapters. Okay, It's just Psalm 1, Psalm 2. So when you're doing public scripture reading or talking in a Bible study, just try to remember that. Uh, Psalms don't have chapters. They're just Psalms. Psalm 1, 2, 3, and so on. Let's read from Psalm 1 and 2 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor in the way of sinners stands, nor in the seat of scoffers sits. But his delight is in the Torah, or the law, or the instruction of Yahweh. And on his Torah he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Yahweh holds them in derision. I mean, He despises that. He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now here's the Messiah speaking. I will tell of the decree that Yahweh said to me, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord our God stands firm forever. Amen. Psalms are songs for worship and work and witness. Psalms are God's word to man, which is revelation, but psalms are also man's response to God. Man's conversations written in poetry and songs to God. Here's a question for you. Are you a bashful prayer? When you are in groups, Bible studies, or in public worship, do you have trouble praying? You say, I don't know how to pray. I wouldn't know the right words to say. Maybe you struggle to pray just on your own. I think we all do. I mean, is our life a continual prayer poured out before the Lord like He commands us to be? Pray without ceasing? We all struggle to pray. Here is our instruction manual. Here is our cheerleader and our coach all in one, the book of Psalms, the Psalter. This is your cheat sheet right here on how to pray and how to sing. Do you struggle to sing in public worship because you say, I don't have a a great voice. I don't want anyone to think that I'm singing too loud. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't feel like singing. This is your coach, your encouragement, your guidebook, the commandment and the comfort that you need to lift your voice in song and in prayer. This is the book of Psalms. Now I want you to imagine how important, and what, you, what you, this book's sitting right in front of us, how much a treasure it is to the New Covenant church that we belong to today. Imagine what it was like back in the days of the Old Covenant when the people of Israel didn't have the psalm book. Like Noah, when he was on the ark and the floods were rising, he didn't have Psalm 46, Our God is refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And when the mountains are buried in the depths of the oceans and the seas, God is with us. He didn't have that psalm to sing. Mm -hmm. Have you imagined the people of Israel, the children wandering out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years before they got to the Promised Land? They didn't have the psalms. They might have had Psalm 90, a psalm of Moses, the only one in the Psalter called that. But they didn't have the psalms, which would instruct them as they fought battles in the desert and waited for God to provide food and manna from heaven Psalm 23, you've prepared a table for me before my enemies, a table for me in the wilderness. you you know how much of a treasure this book is to us, the church, the people of God? We've been given an incredible gift in these 150 songs, in the Psalms. This is, brothers and sisters, a revolutionary gift to the church. Imagine life without the iPod or the cell phone or any other handheld device. Imagine life without any portable electronic device or earbuds. Wouldn't your life be quite different? Imagine back in the 80's when I was growing up in middle school and the new thing that came out was the Sony Walkman. Hello, anybody remember those little cassette players? You know, the Sony Walkman, it was the big deal. You could take your songs on the move. You could jog, you could do aerobics with Richard Simmons if you wanted to, all while you're moving around amazing well we have the world in our ears today we have the whole world at our fingertips what a revolution the internet has been that's what the Psalms were for the people of God they had some of the Word of God coming from the prophets and so on but when the Psalter was written and passed down by scrolls and then eventually put on typeset and printed with the press and then eventually electronic documentation that can spread the Word of God to the whole world when people began putting these psalms to music and singing them in the temple and in churches all over the world, what a revolution. You have the whole world in this book. You have the whole scriptures contained in the psalter. You have the whole cosmos, the whole universe, right here in the palms of your hand. And you can sing them in your heart wherever you go. You can take them on the road when you go jogging. You can sing them in the shower. You can pray them for your children when you put them to bed at night. You can pray them before surgery in the morning. When you are living in deep darkness, you can sing these to find your way out. These, my friends, are a gift that God has given us. Songs for worship and witness and work. The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament as we call them, are often identified in scholarly circles or maybe in Jewish circles as the Tanakh. Have you ever heard that the Old Testament is also called the Tanakh? See up there? T-N-K are the letters that abbreviate Torah, which means the what? Come on. Torah, the law. N stands for, read some Hebrew with me, Neuvim, that stands for the prophets. And then there's the writings, the Ketuvim. And the Psalms are the first book of the writing section of the Bible. The the writings include Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other books you may not expect like Daniel and Chronicles, which is the last book of the Hebrew scriptures. So the Tanakh, the K, Ke, the Ketuvim, the writing, opening with the Psalms, the gateway to the writings of Scripture, a summary of all that will come, the gospel contained in music, you could say. And Luke 24, 44, Jesus says, after his resurrection, he says, using these same threefold categories, all of the Bible is about me. He says this in Luke 24, everything written about me in the Law of Moses, that's the Torah, the Prophets, that's the Net beam. And the writings, but he calls it the Psalms. He uses the word Psalms to identify all the rest of the writings. He says they're all about me and are fulfilled in me. Psalm 1, the gateway to the Psalms. In some ancient manuscripts, it doesn't even have one. It just says Psalms. It's like the opening, the preface to the book. Acts chapter 13, verse 33, some ancient manuscripts call Psalm 2 the first psalm. Many scholars believe these psalms should be read together, like I'm doing today. They at least have a lot of thematic overlap. You look at Psalm 1, you see a lot of similarities with Psalm 2. For instance, Psalm 1 opens up how? Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, but meditates on the Torah of God. How does Psalm 2 end? What's the last verse say? Blessed are all those who take refuge in God. Two themes. You can walk the path of wickedness or the path of righteousness. Two ways to live. Both Psalms deal with the same thing. One under the heading of Torah, the Word of God. Blessed are those who dwell in the Word of God. And Psalm 2, blessed are those who dwell in the Messiah of God, the Son of God. Two great Psalms unified in their theme. Let's look at Psalm 1 to get started. Psalm 1 will be considered a wisdom Psalm. It's not praise. It's not lament. It's not thanksgiving. It's wisdom. It's how to live your life in a blessed, beautiful way in a broken world. That's what wisdom is. It's how to live a blessed, beautiful life for God in a broken world. And Psalm 1 presents to us the way to do that, how to live in righteousness, how to live a blessed life. There's two paths. You can dwell in the Torah and be a righteous person, or you can dwell with the wicked and be swept away in the judgment. Righteousness. How to live a righteous life. This is a picture of the righteous person. What is righteousness? You could summarize it from the Psalms by saying it's friendship and fear of the Lord. Righteousness is friendship with the Lord and fear of the Lord. It's also friendship with God's people and living in unity with them. Friendship and fear. We're given a covenant. The Psalms are based in a covenant relationship. That means God makes a a deal with his people, an agreement of loyal love. And he says, if you walk with me, I'll bless you. Righteousness brings blessing. That's what Psalm 1 is about. Blessed is the man. Now let's just stop there and, and ask this question before we even get into why he's blessed. Blessed is the man. Why is he blessed? Is he blessed because he's not hanging out with those sinners? That are described here? Is he blessed because he's memorizing scripture like a good Christian should? Is he blessed because he sings songs appropriately when he's supposed to, standing and sitting at the right time during the worship service? Why is this man blessed? Not because he's doing any of those things. No, sir. No, man. This man is blessed because God has favored him, because God has blessed him. And the scriptures he's memorizing, is a blessing to him. That's not why he's being blessed, because he's memorizing Scripture. They themselves are the blessing. The Torah is the gift. Why is he being blessed? Because God's given him a church to belong to, a congregation of the righteous to belong to. He's not blessed because he goes to church. He's blessed because he has a church. You see the difference? He's not trying to earn God's favor by singing his songs and praying his prayers. He already has God's blessing and favor, and that's why he's shouting and dancing. You see the prophets of Baal in the times of the prophet Elijah what did they do around that altar when they were calling on God to you know their god Baal bring down fire from heaven and consume our offering what did they do they danced they shouted they cried they slit they sliced their wrists and bled all over the altar to say look how serious we are god won't you bless us now we don't have to cry out and shout out for god's blessing he's given it to us in christ that's why we cry out and shout out in thanks to him amen Blessed is the man and the woman, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Amen. Now that's a threefold warning and a threefold blessing. First, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. You can imagine wicked people gathering around, maybe on the street corners, huddling together, doing their business. You know, always looking over the back when the pastor walks by, you know, or the police drive by. Or, you know, when grandma walks by, they are huddling together doing their business. Or you can imagine, you know, little kids in a playground, in their little clique, keeping out the other little kids who they don't want to belong. People huddled together, mumbling and murmuring, making their plans. That's what we see here. And God says, avoid the counsel of the wicked. Stay far from that. We're not talking about <clears throat> one person that's a bad influence. We're talking about groups of people here. We're not talking about a lone wolf or uh, just one person who you need to avoid. We're talking about the group dynamics that pull you like gravity into its vortex. We're talking about a cell, like a terrorist cell of people in the world who they gather together with one purpose, and it's not a good purpose. And you know it, and they know it. Got to stay away from them when that's happening. Now, he says, don't stand in the way of sinners next. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Don't walk with these Council of wicked people and don't stand in the way of sinners. Who are these sinners? Well, I can I can guarantee you, they're not people who just stumbled into sin by mistake. Oops. (laughs) We all make mistakes. We all do things we shouldn't, and we repent of them, we regret them, we're guilty, we feel ashamed, we try to do differently. These are people who it's not accidental. They're not stumbling into sin, they're stubborn in their sin. You know the difference. They're stubborn, they won't change. They're they're in the same rut over and over. They have this predictability. You can just call the shots before it happens. I know what they're about to do or say. I've seen them do this before. They're consistent in their sin. And God says, don't stand with them. The first, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, their planning, their their attitude, their their mind. Now he's saying, don't follow their behaviors. Don't stand with those people and what they're doing. It's foolishness. And in Psalm 2, verse 2, it says that they've taken their stand against Yahweh and His anointed one. These people aren't just standing together in a group for solidarity and strength. No, they're standing against something. They're standing against God and His purposes. And then the third thing it says is don't sit in the seat of mockers. Now, we're talking about walking, we're talking about standing, now we're talking about sitting, like you're doing right now. When you sit, you belong, you identify, you're comfortable, you're dwelling there. Literally, the Hebrew word means something like you're dwelling in the seat of scoffers. What are scoffers? People that are arrogant, rude, proud. They just shoot off at the mouth. They're not humble. They're not obedient. They're not kind. They make fun of those who are righteous. They make fun of the Messiah of God. They say to Him, like when Jesus was hanging on the cross, if you're the Son of God, come down and prove it like Satan himself. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Mockers, scoffers, don't associate with them, he's saying. Don't identify with them. Don't feel comfortable with them. We're not just talking about atheists who are loud and challenging their belief in God. We're talking about politicians. We're talking about preachers. Can I even say we're talking about the preachers of L.A.? Hello, anybody? I don't watch it, but I've heard about it. I mean, we're talking about people that are comfortable in taking the Bible and choosing which parts they'll follow, and then they're so proud, they can say, I don't need to listen to this part. I don't need to submit myself to that. They are not submitting to God's Word, His Torah. They're sinners. And we are called not to walk, stand, or sit with them in this progression of deeper and deeper distance and departure from God Himself. We're called to be blessed and to not be... With them. Now, now, let me just ask this question. What about missions? What about evangelism? What about your lost friends and family who need to hear about Jesus? Are you supposed to say, I ain't walking with you. I'm not going to sit down at your table. And I'm certainly not going to call you on the phone and take counsel with you. What do you do with this verse and that dynamic of the Christian heart, which in every Christian heart should be beating with love for the lost and mercy for those who doubt? Like Jude says, have mercy on them who doubt and snatch them from the fire and save them. How can you do that if you don't associate with them? If you don't walk, stand or sit with them. Well, don't, don't take this literally and don't take it in isolation. Look at the rest of Scripture and realize that what he's saying is don't associate with these people to the degree that you begin to adopt what they do as your own patterns and lifestyles and attitudes. If you begin to reflect who they are, then you need to put some distance between yourself and them. But, of course, Jesus set the example and proved without a doubt that he went to the prostitutes, tax collectors, and all sorts of sinners, including the religious folks, and he dined with them. He dined with the despised of the world. He, he went to the sinners that everyone else was rejecting, including the church. He made his home among them. He said to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, I'm coming to your house today, whether you like it or not. Let's go. Let's start walking together. Walking with the wicked is what he did so that they would be changed. Not so that he would be changed. See, so we, we have to walk this line carefully, brothers and sisters. If we want to be blessed and righteous, we have to walk carefully. Not because the world is so evil. Don't, don't be so careful because the world is so evil. Be careful because you are so vulnerable, vulnerable. Because you have so many temptations in your heart. Don't pretend that you're so better than them that you can't be near them. No, no. You're just as bad as them you need the lord's mercy just as much as they do. And and the line that divides righteousness and wickedness in this world, good and evil, runs right down the middle of every human heart. Right down the middle of yours and mine. Blessed is the man who recognizes this. Blessed is the woman who does not associate and become evil, but does what? Meditates on the Torah of Yahweh, the law of the Lord, day and night. It doesn't mean to meditate on God's word well, meditating literally means something like to speak quietly under your breath, like, rrr, 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 kind of muttering, mumbling, rrr, rrr, kind of like you guys do sometimes. When I start preaching too long, you're like, rrr, rrr, what time is it? Rrr, rrr. You're mumbling, you're meditating. That's a bad way to do it. The good way is when you take the scriptures, like a Jewish rabbi. I can picture some that I've seen. I've been on airplanes with some. I've been at the Western Wall in Jerusalem next to them as they were praying and mumbling the words under their mouth, mumbling prayers, just meditating, letting it percolate like a coffee maker in their hearts. And it's not just the words, it's in their minds, it's in their actions, it's thoroughly working itself in. It's the background music of the blessed heart, the background music of the righteous person. What's in the background of your thoughts all the time? What's, what's the default? If, if you're not engaged intentionally in something else, what does your mind go to? Checking your emails and your messages, your status, you know? What does your mind go to? Is it just static, like blank? <sighs> Hopefully not. Hopefully we've got something better going on in there. But what is your default? Is it anxiety? Is it always wondering, what do I have to do next? Is it fear of what's going to happen to you? Is it fear of what people will think about you? What's your default setting? What do you meditate on day and night all the time? God says, let it be my word. Your life will be beautiful and blessed, righteous and prosperous. If that's what's on your mind day and night, Meditating. it it could also be translated something like chewing on it, just chewing on it slowly, letting your saliva just break it down, ingesting it, digesting it. When I eat my wife's food, sometimes I start mumbling and muttering little sounds. She calls it sound effects. Um, It's a compliment to the chef, to be honest, that when I eat her food, I often go, mmm, mmm. And she makes fun of me. She mocks me for it. She scoffs at me for this. But I think what a better compliment can I give her than to, to meditate and munch and Just have the sound effect and chewing on the food that's giving me sustenance and joy. That's what we're called to do with the Word of God. Just chew on it. Mm. I'm not talking about smacking with your mouth open in an annoying way. You can annoy people if you're going around quoting Scripture all the time. You can become annoying. The Bible itself says that. If you rise up early in the morning, bless everybody in Jesus' name this morning. They're all still sleeping. It says it will be taken as a curse. The blessing will be interpreted as a curse. I was on the train the other day in the tunnel down the red line. You know, this is like an echo chamber, not a very big space to start yelling. And there was a lady yelling, Hallelujah, bless Jesus, bless them all. And she was just, as people were walking by, I was like, I don't feel blessed right now. I don't feel blessed. I don't think they feel blessed either. She was like, The throngs and masses people, bless them all, Hallelujah. I mean, I'm not judging her. I'm just saying, in that moment, it didn't seem like something that people were appreciative of. Mumbling and meditating on the word is something for you to do. Not for for you to like mumble and mutter stuff for other people, okay? But chew on the word day and night. This is not just something that's private and personal, though. It's not just you and Jesus having your quiet time, your devotional, in a closet somewhere, off on the edge of a pier with your feet in the water. This is also something that happens in community, meditating on God's word together. This is something that is at the heart of The Bible, at the heart of the Psalms, is this covenant relationship between God and His people. It's not just me and Jesus, it's us and Jesus, the church, meditating together day and night. Because I can't live as a hermit. I tried when I first got married to have my little quiet spot in the house and have my quiet time. And that used to be when I was in high school, while I was eating my breakfast at the table. I would get my bowl of cereal. I had usually like three of them when I was in high school. I'd have like three bowls of cereal, two pieces of toast, and a cup of yogurt, and a banana. That was like my standard breakfast. And I'd have about thirty minutes to read the Bible. Then I got married, and my wife said, let's eat breakfast together. I was like, what? Like, that's a great idea, but what about my Bible reading time? Now I've got to wake up earlier and have that time, because I don't live as an isolated individual. I live in community. So meditating on it day and night all the time has to happen with some other people sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so moving to what is this Torah? that we're meditating on. What is this word of God, the law of God, which is the Torah? What is it? It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's not just the laws, do and do not. Because if that's all we meditated on, we'd be missing a whole lot of other good stuff. The Torah is literally the instruction of Yahweh, the ways of the Lord, the path that he sets you out on. Meditate on the ways of God as it's found in all of Scripture, is the gist of it. What does that include? Well, it includes when someone punches you in the mouth, and knock some teeth out. The Bible deals with this, brothers and sisters. It talks about that in the Torah. You hear what I'm saying? When someone pulls a knife on you on 43rd in Cottage Grove, the Bible talks about what happened last night to some of you, yes. It deals with what to do when someone sues you and takes you to court. It talks about what newlywed soldiers should do, the benefits they receive in taking a year off from going to battle. They get to stay home with their new wife. It deals with city codes for building walls around your roof so that people don't fall off and die. The Bible, the Torah, talks about rules for hiring and paying day laborers, like the guys that are in Home Depot parking lot waiting for someone to drive by and pick them up for the day to go do some drywall. It talks about these things. It talks about who's in your bed with you rightfully. It talks about what thoughts run around in your head when you're going to bed at night. It talks about how to treat refugees from war torn countries like Syria. Literally, the Bible does talk about Syria. Uh, It talks about how to not overcharge and overtax the poor in places like Cook County and Jerusalem. The Bible, the Torah, is all-pervasive. It deals with all of life. It's not just about me with my Bible doing personal things for my soul. It's not just about the interior of my life or what we would call spiritual things. It deals with everything. Amen? Amen? You can meditate on the Word of God day and night in the field or in the streets. You can do it in battle or in class. Or you can do it out loud. You can do it quietly with a cup of coffee on your back porch. You can do it while you're jogging. You can do it anywhere at any time. And that's really what Psalm 1 is all about. If you look at some of the phrases like, this man is prosperous in whatever he does, verse 3, whatever he does includes pretty much everything he does, right? So whatever you do is included in the Torahs whoever you are with, whether you're in the council of the wicked or, as it says later, the congregation of the righteous, whoever you're with, you could be meditating on the Torah and living it out whenever you're doing whatever you're doing with whoever you're doing it with, because he says day and night. That means all the time, whenever. And finally, wherever you go, whether you're walking or standing or sitting, he covers all the bases. And he says, this is when, who, what, and where you should be meditating on the Torah. It's all-inclusive. All of life. Not a single stone left unturned. It sounds like what Deuteronomy 6, verse 7 says. That's the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, which you might know is the prayer every Israelite would make in the morning and evening, the Shema, which means here, because it starts by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord your God The Lord Yahweh is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Just like Psalm 1 says, delight yourself in the Torah. Love Him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And He says, now I want you to take this commandment and stamp it on your forehead, right on your hand, post it above your door frame, wherever you go, whether you're out in the street or back home with the kids, teach this commandment, pray this prayer. It's all-inclusive, wherever, whenever, whoever, whatever, whatever. This is what Psalm 1 is about. It's the most important command. Loving God and His Word, finding your home, dwelling in the Torah, and in His Messiah, the Son of God. Now, if you live like this, deepening your relationship with God through His Word, and distancing yourself from the evil influences of the world that are affecting you, you will be prosperous, the Bible says. Plan simply says that man prospers in whatever he does. It's right there, if you don't believe me. It says it in verse 3. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, we have a problem with prosperity. My first problem is, I don't feel like I'm always prospering in whatever I do. Some of my relationships, some of my endeavors, some of my dreams and goals, I bet you feel the same way, don't you? That you're not prospering in whatever you do, and you're like, Hey, wait a minute, God, I'm going to call you out on this. Keep you honest, God. That's not happening in my life. Well, there's a couple problems with prosperity. Some of them are our fault. Some of them are just the way things are. Some of them, because we don't understand exactly what prosperity means, let me just quickly highlight a few. One problem with prosperity is it's not just about health and wealth, despite what the preachers of L.A. say. Prosperity is not just about you getting rich quick and getting a T-shirt with a big dollar sign on it. That's really not the prosperity the Bible's talking of, first and foremost. It includes God taking care of your material needs, but do you really think that that's all that's included? Do you think that Jesus was the wealthiest man ever to live on the earth? that he stacked it high, that he had bling all over his fingers, that he came down in, not sandals, but Jordans or something? I mean, what do you think? Like, do you think he was wearing Armani? No, he was stripped naked and put on a cross. Did he prosper? Was he the most blessed man and the most righteous man? Yes. God favored him more than anyone. So what does it mean? It doesn't mean just health and wealth. Okay, it means a relationship with the living God that goes into eternity, and you'll never be poor or have another tear in eternity. Okay? It also means that you might have done something to hinder the prosperity that God wants to give you and is promising to you. Maybe you sinned in a way, maybe you're not meditating day and night on the Torah, and you're doing a little too much standing, sitting, and walking with the sinners and being a little too much of a sinner yourself. Don't tell me that God hasn't blessed you unless you're thoroughly living a righteous life, humbling yourself daily before Him and doing everything according to His Torah. Then we can start saying, okay, God, I'm doing it just like You told me, and I'm expecting some help along the way. Yes, of course, this is his promise to us. But let me just say this. The book of Psalms, even though it opens with Psalm 1, you can divide Psalm, the book of Psalms into five sub-books, like five chapters. They're called books 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, kind of patterned off after the Torah of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Psalm Book 1 includes Psalm 1 through 41. At the end of each of these little books, you see some blessing or some great thing like amen and amen or hallelujah, praise the Lord, and you're kind of moving on to the next book, the next chunk of Psalms. Well, in chunk number one or book number one, Psalms 1 through 41, you don't get a whole lot of prosperity preaching or poetry or songs. You get a lot of pain and problems, and there's a lot of cries for help. Help me in my distress, Psalm 18 and so many others. Where are you, God? It's so dark here. I need some help. This is what you get. Two to one. It's a two to one ratio of problems to prosperity in the book one of Psalms. And so we have to realize that some of the really sweet, comforting ones come later in further books of the Psalms, but there's a lot of problems. It's reality. It's what happens in life, but we still are told that God is a refuge and will bless us and prosper us even in and through the pain I hope you can see how complex and how beautiful this is when God is still gracious to us, when we don't think we're prospering. Despite the heat, despite the drought, despite the the storms of life, the frigid coldness of your life and mine sometimes, he gives us a warm, rock-solid promise in verse 3. He says this, The blessed person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. Here's a promise. If you are planted by the life giving streams of God and His Word and His people, you will begin to bear fruit. You will begin to prosper in ways you don't even think you can prosper. We spent a whole uh, six weeks on the fruit, uh, I think six weeks, on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. There are nine fruit of the Spirit, but we kind of compressed a few of them. The fruit of the Spirit is God's gift to His people. You can't just say, Well, I'm going to be a tree today. I'm going to plant myself by some streams of water, and I'm going to bear some fruit today. No, it says. A passive verb. You were planted. Blessed is the person who has been planted by streams of water. How does that happen? That means God has uprooted you from your former way of life. He's taken that tree away from that plot of soil and plopped you in and patted you down with some really good Garden of Eden type soil on steroids, essentially. You're right next to the water stream. And this isn't just like some river, like the Chicago River, which isn't that clean, to be honest. I just read about in in paper this week. This is a hand-dug canal, an irrigation canal that God has dug with his own hand or like in ancient times they would dig with their heel. They would just drag their heel in the ground and dig little irrigation canals for the field and God says, I'm going to put you right here next to my living streams. I'm going to plant you. I'm going to transplant you and you're going to bear fruit. This is a gift of God. This is a blessed life. It's not just about who you hang out with and what kind of behavior you have on the outside. Like, I'm not doing those sinful actions like the wicked people we talked about. No, this is about what's happening inside of you. To be transplanted means to be transformed or transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the beloved son that Colossians 1 talks about. This is to be transformed inwardly. You become a tree who supernaturally can bear fruit now by God's power. This is about your desires. Desires. It says, the man who delights in the Torah of God and meditates on it day and night. We skipped over that word, but let me just say something about it. Delighting in God's Word is about your desires. Your desires begin to change when God has transplanted you. What do you desire? What are you hungry and thirsty for? The desires are everything. You cannot act a certain way unless you want to act a certain way. You want to stop sinning, but guess what? You really don't want to stop sinning because you keep doing it. That means you want to keep doing it. That's what I found that out years ago. That I need to start praying that my desires would change. I couldn't just say, "God, slap me on the hand and help me not to do that bad thing anymore," because I still wanted to do it. It was just raging inside of me. Help me to delight in something other than sin. Help me to delight in your word, in your ways, day and nights, day and nights. Desires are the hottest flame for holiness and fellowship with God and other people. It's, it's what makes righteousness work, is that you want to be righteous. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So it's the word of God entering us. We, we chew it up. We meditate on it. We absorb it. We digest it. We begin living it. It begins producing fruit in us. It doesn't just pass through our bodies or out in one in and out the other. It stays and remains and dwells in us as we dwell in the Word itself. And it changes us. It has its way with us. Not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. Verses 4 and 5. In the congregation of the righteous, the wicked will not stand. We learn here in verse 5. In the judgment of God and in the congregation of the righteous, you won't find wicked people at the end of the day. Now there's an issue here. You do find them there for a moment. The the wicked will stand before God of judgment for a moment, and He'll judge them, and they'll be gone forever. You will find wicked people in the assembly or the congregation of the righteous. You'll find sinners in church, I guarantee it. You will find sinners in church. You'll find sinners quoting Scripture. You'll find wicked people quoting the Bible, but using it for their own ends and means, their own ends and purposes. Psalm 50, verse 16, God asked the wicked person this. Why do you take my covenant on your lips? Why do you keep talking about my promise? You don't follow me. You don't obey me. You don't delight in me. So why do you keep quoting the Bible as if you do? Trying to impress someone else? Trying to use it as a magic incantation to twist my arm or manipulate me? Why are you quoting the Torah? You're not meditating on it day and night bearing fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, something very similar to Psalm 1. There's two ways to live. Righteousness or wickedness. The righteous person, he says, built his house on a foundation of what? Stone. Strong. Unmoving. Strong foundation. The wicked person builds his house on a foundation of what? Shifting sand. Now, when the waters rise and the storms come, the man who hears the Word and heeds the Word, he hears it, he heeds it, he does it, he practices it, that man's life will stay firm In storm, in drought, in season and out of season, like Psalm 1 says, he's always going to have fruit and leaf. The other man, the wicked, he's going to be washed away when the storm's coming because he heard the word, but he didn't obey it. See, he's in church hearing the word. He's got a Bible right there at home. He reads it, but he's not doing what it says. He's not enjoying, delighting in it, and desiring it. And in the end, the psalm ends by saying this. The wicked will not stand. They will perish. They will be washed away when the storms of life comes and the judgment of God comes. But the Lord Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. That's how this beautiful psalm ends. The way of the righteous is known by Yahweh, God. He doesn't just know about us. Like, I'm going to predict that good things will happen to you. He doesn't just, he's not just aware of what's going on in our life. He knows us in the sense of intimacy, warmth, and compassion. He actually plans our good. He provides for our good. He protects us and prizes us and delights in us. And that's why we're delighting in Him, once again, because we're blessed by Him. He knows us. I'm known by God. I'm blessed. That's why I delight in His Word. That's why I want to find myself dwelling in His Word, because He is dwelling in me. The righteous are blessed because God knows them. He watches them. He dwells in them. He cares for them. Amen? Now I'm going to read Psalm 2 just as like a closing application focused on the Messiah. Dwelling in the Word of God has a parallel in Psalm 2 to dwelling in the Son of God. Follow with me as we talk about this for a few minutes. Psalm 2 is called a coronation psalm. What does coronation mean? It means a crowning. A crowning ceremony. A king in Israel would be set on the throne and crowned as the king and they might read this psalm at his crowning. You are the anointed of the Lord. You are now called the Son of God in some way, but He's still a human. But no human king in Israel's day, no mere human could ever fulfill or live up to this psalm's promise. You see what I'm saying? You see some of these verses that no human could ever fulfill. But when Jesus came upon the earth, God in human flesh, this psalm went viral in the New Testament. I mean, this psalm appears 15 times in the New Testament. Way more than most others. Because Jesus was the perfect, righteous man who was the true king, the only anointed one of God, and he fulfilled it in its every manner. And so the psalmist starts this coronation, kingly psalm, by asking a question. The the psalmist, the writer of the psalm says, why do the nations rage? What in the world is going on? Why do you have all these riots going on? Why all the mobs of people... And and you get the idea again of the congregation of the wicked, as we saw in Psalm 1, the, the council of the wicked. They're gathering together, and they're angry. They're upset. They're plotting in vain, verse 1. Why do the peoples plot in vain? That's the same word, plot, as used in Psalm 1, verse 2, to meditate. The same word. To chew, to mutter, to kind of say something under your breath. See what they're doing they're plotting. What are they meditating on? Well, think about premeditating on something. What do people premeditate on doing? Premeditated murder. See, they're plotting murderous things. They're plotting evil. They're plotting to kill the king of Israel. They're plotting the the king, the anointed one. They're plotting to take him down from his throne. They want to be on the throne. They want to be at the center. They want to be in charge of their lives and of the world. And so here they are plotting, angry, counseling together against Yahweh and his Mashiach. Now what is that word? Just the word Messiah. What does the word Messiah mean? It's, a, it's an ancient Hebrew word. Do you know what it means? It means the anointed one. It's the same word as Christ. The Christoph in Greek. Mashiach, Messiah, Messiah. Christos, Christ, anointed. They all mean the same thing. The chosen one of God who's been set apart to rule over God's people. That's the Messiah. And they are saying, we are standing against Yahweh and His Messiah. We don't want Him to rule over us. We want to make our own rules. We want freedom to do whatever we want. We don't want freedom to do what is right. We want freedom to do it our way. So they say, bring the bolt cutters. Give me the bolt cutters. I'm breaking free. I'm cutting the chains I'm throwing off the bonds that God's put on me. They're talking about the law of God, the Word of God. I don't want to send them to the Word of God. It's slavery to me. I want to do my own thing. So they cut free and they say, we're loose now. We can do whatever we want. You know what God does? As These people look at things like marriage and say, to this covenant promise, this beautiful covenant of love, they say, it's a ball and chain. Get it off me. I don't want to be married. I want to do sex my own way, relationships my own way. You know what God says when he hears people talking like that? He doesn't say anything. He just laughs. It says right there in Psalm 2, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. Can you imagine God, just this deep belly laugh from heaven, shaking heaven and earth with his laugh? It's not a comical, joyful laugh. It's like, are you kidding me? Laugh like, you little tiny ant upon the earth. You're standing against Yahweh and His anointed? Are you kidding me that you're going to tell me that you're going to throw my bonds off because they're slavery to you? What do you think the alternative is, you insane people down there on the earth? He's laughing not at their judgment to come, which is inev- inevitable if they don't turn Him. He's not laughing at their doom, which is sure. He's laughing at the insanity. Are you kidding me, He's saying? I'm God. There is no other. You cannot rule your life. Only my chosen one can rule and reign over you. And so he laughs, but then he speaks, he decrees something. And the Messiah tells us what this God of wrath says, this God of fury, verse 5 says. The Messiah is now speaking um, in verse 7. I will tell of the decree that Yahweh said when he put me as king on the holy hill of Zion. He says, I will tell of the decree. Here's what he says. The Lord said to me, Yahweh says to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now what's this language about today I have begotten you? I thought Jesus was the eternal son of God. I've been preaching that for 20 years. Jesus, the eternal son of God. Jesus, not created, but the uncreated creator. He's eternal. So how is God going to say here, and Jesus is actually quoting it, Yahweh said to me, You're my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, first of all, we're not talking about biology here, okay? Because remember, this was written thousands of years before Jesus was even born. About a thousand years before he was born. We're not talking about biology because Jesus was existent before he was born in the virgin's womb. What he's saying is something the New Testament writers picked up on, and they knew. They're saying this is referring to the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to sit on the throne of heaven. If you don't believe me, let me me just ask you to rise for this scripture reading real quick from Acts chapter 13. Let's rise as we think about the resurrection of Jesus from Acts 13. Verse 29-35. Listen to this. And when they, that is the rulers of the earth who put Jesus to death, when they had carried out what was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree, that's the cross, they laid Him in a tomb, but God raised Him from the dead, and for many days He appeared to those who had come up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem. That's His disciples. He appeared to them. He walked with them. And these people are now His witnesses. To the people, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the resurrection language of God the king saying to his son, Today you are the king, but today I'm publicly announcing it to everybody. This is your coronation ceremony. This is when we're going public with it. All the world will hear through your witnesses that you are the risen king. And One more scripture as you stand. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 focuses on how this scripture is fulfilled in Jesus' ascension when he rose up from the dead and then into heaven to sit on the throne of God. Hebrews 1. I seem to have lost my sermon notes here so I'll just flip to Hebrews 1 and finish this up. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways. We are not talking about Star Wars here, people. This is God's Word. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, the last days, don't forget, this was written 2,000 years ago. Okay? In these last days, the last days came after Jesus died and rose again. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Literally, It doesn't say His, it just says He's spoken to us by Son. Just as blatant, as clear as can be, Jesus is the last word, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Jesus, the creator of the world and the inheritor of the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. God is just shining forth through Jesus and He's the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power, And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Get that. He sat down on the throne of heaven, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You may be seated. See? You're my son, I've begotten you. That means he's risen from the dead and exalted to the highest place sitting on the throne of heaven. This is his coronation day, his crowning, when he begins to take his rule public. Hebrews chapter 1. The psalm finishes by saying, okay, if, if you're down on the earth, you little ants of people, creating this little commotion, these little riots and these little mobs down there, and God's up on the throne with his risen son, he's risen from the dead, that Acts chapter 4 said that Pontius Pilate... King Herod and the rulers in Jerusalem who were the religious leaders, the priests and prophets of that day, they put him on the cross. Jesus died. They killed him. His blood was shed by their hands, by their murderous, wicked hands. But it says in Acts chapter 4, this was according to the hand of the Lord and the predestined plan of God. The wicked, raging, shouting, mocking, crucifying the Messiah was all according to the plan of God the King. He planned it out before eternity passed and it unfolded just like he wanted it to and then he raised Him from the dead to shock and awe all of them and he seated them at the, the rightful throne where he alone belongs. He's the only one that deserves that place. You don't get to make the rules. I don't get to make the rules. You're not the king. I'm not the king. The rappers aren't the king. The president's not the king. The mayor's not the king. The rich and famous aren't the kings. The bullies on the playground or downtown Chicago are not in charge. Only Jesus deserves that title. He's the only righteous man of Psalm 1. He's the only truly blessed man who meditates day and night and lives out the Word of God. He's the only one that is the Word of God. And So the only sane thing to do is listen to the warnings. This last verse of the psalm. This last section, 10 through 12. Psalm 2, 10 through 12. Therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. Okay, Be wise and be warned. This is the only sane thing to do. And I'm giving you a heads up, he says. This is a gracious warning. Don't tell me that I didn't warn you. Because here it is. If, if we have a risen king like Jesus, here's what you do. You serve him with fear. And you rejoice with trembling. You serve Him in the proper fear and respect that He deserves. Honor Him. And you rejoice. You delight deeply in Him with a respectful delight, a joyful reverence that just makes your bones shake. You're so glad that He's chosen you and forgiven you. And then it says in verse 12, kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Kiss the sun. Maybe you have in your ideas of like, kissing the son, like maybe the Pope wearing his ring and someone kneels down and kisses that ring. I'm not sure what you think of. I, I think of various things, but when I studied this word this week, I learned something new. The word for son here isn't really the word son in Hebrew. Okay, It's the word son in the Aramaic. You know, Jesus spoke Aramaic. He actually spoke Aramaic from the cross. And some of the Bible is written in Aramaic, but not the Psalms and not Psalm 1. It literally doesn't say kiss the son. It says kiss purely or sincerely. The words are very similar. The word for son in Hebrew is ben, like Benjamin, son of my right hand. Or in Psalm 2, verse 7, you are my son, ben atah. You are my son, ben. But this word is not the word ben, the word bar. You've heard that in the Bible, too. In the New Testament, Bar, Jonah, or Jesus, Bar, Joseph, Jesus, the son of Joseph. But it's not the word son. So it literally doesn't just say kiss the son, although that's that's the idea. Like, yes, you need to kiss the Messiah. But it says sincerely, purely, is the idea. That's the word in Hebrew. Kiss the son purely, sincerely. Don't fake it, is I think what he's saying. Don't be a hypocrite. And just act like you love Jesus. You have to actually... Love Him. You have to delight in Him. He sees like an x-ray every human heart. He has like a lie detector built in. He, he knows exactly what you're thinking when you're worshiping Him. So make sure that you serve Him with fear and rejoice with trembling. Not just happy clappy because everyone else is doing it it's the right thing. Do you really mean the songs that come out of your heart, the life that you live? Do you really mean this? Walking in the ways of the Lord? Because if you do, then you can take that Son of God, who is described here as a God who is angry. A God whose wrath is easily kindled. And you can look at him on the cross and see a God who is for you, not against you. You can see Jesus, who it says here, will take the chaff like this. It's uprooted, and it just blows it away. But that doesn't have to be you. You can be planted deeply. It's like Jesus who says he will take the nations like clay pots. That's you and me. We're like clay pots. The Bible says we're fragile, we're frail. He will take these clay pots and he will shatter them like that. That's what he's going to do. He's going to shatter them. That's what what Jesus does to his enemies. But you know, when you look upon the cross, Jesus in his human flesh, the clay body that he took on, he was shattered for us. He doesn't crush his people. He raises us because he was crushed for us. And when you come to a God like that, you can read Psalm 2, verse 12 with confidence. Blessed is everyone who takes refuge in Him. Blessed is everyone. There is no refuge from God. There is no refuge from God's His wrath and anger, but there is refuge in God. There is no refuge from God. Only in God will you find your refuge and your strength, your ever-present help in times of trouble. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for blessing us Not because of anything we've done or said or will do or say, but because we are simply loved by God. And you've transplanted us from sin into righteousness. Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect. We still have sin in our hearts. We still struggle, just like everyone else, God. But you've called us, you've given us your gracious word. We don't memorize it to be blessed. We thank you and are blessed that we have your word. Help us to think deeply and live deeply according to it. Live wisely and beautifully in this broken world so that at the end we will not be swept away in the judgment when the storms come. That in the end we will not be shattered like pottery, but we will be healed in Christ who is only our refuge, who alone is the Son of God and alone deserves the place of the throne of heaven. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our refuge and our strength. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.